Hello, you're listening to Drawn to the Flame, a podcast for fans of Arkham Horror, the card game. I'm your host, Frank, and today I'm joined by... It's me, Peter. Hello, Frank. Hi, Peter. How are you doing? Good, good. Much better than last week. I was still a bit ill last week, but, but feeling just a little bit better this week. Getting over it. Slowly Fantastic. but surely. How about you? I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, I'm doing well as well. I'm full of beans, and we've just been sort of thrashing out this episode we want to do, and I'm excited to see where the discussion takes us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Often the case when we do an episode like this, we don't know where we're going to end up, and that's exciting. Yes, yeah. And there's that moment of us talking without the mics rolling, and there's part of me thinking, the mic should be rolling, this is golden what we're saying. <laughs> and then, as ever, we'll chase the dream of getting that kind of that that great content onto the cast hopefully fingers crossed touch wood so what are we talking about this week mm, yes so this week we are going to that topic that we alluded to last week in the question the mailbag episode which is all about the color pie in arkham and in fact as we were talking about this episode off air we were talking about that idea of is this really related to the episode we did on splashing cards or on off class cards and what each faction or class represents in the game. We're going to use faction and class interchangeably in this episode. I'm, I'm aware that normally it's class that's used in the game, right? I think on the rules it's under classes. Yes, um, that sounds about right. Rather than factions, but we end up using faction a lot as well. I wonder where we started using faction. Anyway, there are five classes in the game, and so we're looking at those and talking about the colour pie more generally. And... We also, the reason we're doing this is because we got sent a fantastic email by a patron exploring this exact topic and asking us to explore us, posing us some questions and really just sort of getting into the weeds of the topic. And that's what we love doing as well. So it was quite an inspiring email. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And well, I mean, I did it. I did invite the email. <laughs> uh, I, I know Alex had, had made a, a comment that I'd found interesting on the Discord and I just asked him to remind me of the content of it mm. and Alex being Alex he sent me a four or five page email <laughs> but expanding Amazing. on the concepts oh that's I so think good that, well I, th- I think he said he's tried to explain it to his partner and it's often met with with some eye rolling because he starts to explain it late at night after he's had several beers oh okay yeah I can imagine. so it was a, it was a good opportunity for him to just download a lot of his thoughts oh uh, yeah well we're super grateful thanks Alex yeah yeah no thank you for taking the time so we alluded to this in that splashing episode, but Peter, maybe you can run us through it again. What is a colour pie when it comes to card games? Well, I think I'll, I'll defer to Alex's email, actually, and read out a quick section from that. Alex's <laughs> quick definition is that it's an understanding of what each faction in a card game, in this instance, gets as its card effects or investigator abilities. Alex has gone on to say sometimes people will disagree about whether a particular card should be something that a particular faction should get access to. And he's picked, as an example, Bloodright, a seeker card that lets seekers discard cards and pay resources to do testless damage to any enemy. You could argue that that effect, a direct testless damage, doesn't feel right for seeker. Mm-hmm. Or, to put it another way, it shouldn't be in their their slice of the colour pie. Yeah, and straight away it then makes me think about what different effects and what different abilities belong to each faction because we've got damage there which i would think of as guardian but Mm -hmm. we've got discard which is sort of survivor yeah and it's a spell which is mystic but you know 
as we'll see in this discussion, the color ply doesn't actually say that certain traits are completely gated to one faction. Yes. And yeah, I think that's a useful starting point for color ply. I remember as well, way back when, now over 20 years ago, <laughs> playing some scary when I was, I was thinking about this yesterday and thinking, oh gosh, I was going to say half my life, but it's, it's a lot more than half my life ago. Playing Magic the Gathering, I, I've never owned any magic cards, but someone had lent me some decks. That <laughs> seems wild that someone would just give you a pile of cards. And I was playing with my younger brother, and there was a red deck and a green deck. And the red deck always won, because the red deck could just kill you really quickly, and the green deck couldn't do anything about it. And I remember thinking the game was really unfair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and of course, now, knowing what I know about magic, there are lots of red decks that are aggro and do a lot of damage quickly. And green decks, there are some green decks that like to grow huge creatures and take a bit of time to to grow. Maybe they're like a ramp deck or sort of build up in that way. So I, I don't know the quality of the decks we've been given either. I can't remember enough about it. But immediately my experience of the game was that, that it was unfair and unbalanced as a, a young teenager who didn't really know what was going on. And actually, I think it was a really good illustration of what we're going to come on to talk about, about color pie yeah and that they seemed that they had very defined identities yeah. that were very separate almost well asymmetrical really yeah uh, even though the actual gameplay was symmetrical the what they couldn't couldn't do felt asymmetrical so so it's i think magic's an interesting place to start i don't know personally the exact origin of the word color pie but i would mm-hmm. strongly suspect it's it's tied to magic Considering that in magic, the factions are called colours. Yeah. And they are literally colours. There's red, hang on, I'll do it in order. White, blue, black, uh, red, green. I think that's mm-hmm. the right order. Maybe it's not. Oh, is that? Sorry, I'm getting sidetracked. Um, <laughs> and and quite often, I mean, my experience of magic is nearly as old as yours. And I only mm. played it at a kind of kitchen table level. There's There's abilities that are quite strongly tied to different colours, or there certainly was back in the day. Mm. But your ability to play around not re- not needing those effects in your colour was, was much greater. Mm. You'd, ha- you'd maybe come up with another way of, of dealing with that issue, or you'd ignore it altogether. Mm. Um, it becomes an issue when a particular deck like that becomes popular, uh, and then you have to morph your deck building to, to accommodate that, whether that's including different colours or, or paying a premium inside your faction to be able to do it, or accepting the limitations of doing it in a particular kind of way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That feels something easier to do in Magic than it does in Arkham. Yeah. Should we move on a little bit? Oh, I tell you what, now, before we go into that, let, let's talk about, certainly initially, what the colour pies slices look like in Arkham. Uh, and actually, we, we did write a series of articles about this, basically, right? We wrote mm-hmm, a, a, mm-hmm. a faction a faction introduction article for each faction yeah. uh, on the FFG website. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, whether, have you gone back and read those at any t- recently? Or has <laughs> it's it deleted been... from my mind, yeah. <laughs> They're probably horrendously out of date by this point. Mm, mm. Well, yeah, you've said before, you know, we recommend Machete and Dr. Milan and all of the cards that... Some people still play, but yeah. That are good so, cards. 
The classes are defined in Arkham. They're in the rules reference and they each get a little two sentence or yeah, two sentence description. Guardians feel compelled to defend humanity and thus go out of their way to combat the forces of the mythos. They have a strong sense of duty and selflessness that drives them to protect others and to hunt monsters down. That's Guardians. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about that or should I just keep power on through? Let's do all, all of them. I, I think okay. probably nothing you're going to say is going to be surprising to listeners. So let's just blast through them all then we'll, we'll, we'll dive a bit deeper. Mystics are drawn to the... No, the mystics are drawn to and influenced by the arcane forces of the mythos. Many have spellcasting abilities, able to manipulate the forces of the universe through magical talent. Rogues are self-serving and out for themselves. Wily and opportunistic, they are always eager for a way to exploit their current situation. Seekers are primarily concerned with learning more about the world and about the mythos. They wish to research forgotten lore, map out uncharted areas, and study strange creatures. And finally, survivors are everyday people, in the wrong place at the wrong time, simply trying to survive. Ill-prepared and ill-equipped, survivors are the underdogs who rise to the occasion when their lives are threatened. So if, if we jump back to the kind of the beginning of the game, those first, you know, maybe the first cycle or so, Mm. What would you say mechanically we, we, we associate with the various classes? I mean, Guardians instantly feels like it's weapons and fighting and mm-hmm. finding enemies to fight. Yeah. Or even more than weapons, it would be damage. Yeah. Because Rogues also had the Derringer and the Switchblade, but they were conditional damage or unreliable damage, whereas Guardians were... The 45, about as reliable as it gets, and the machete mm. and dynamite, you know, pay and you can do damage to everything. So it was sort of like, yeah, if you needed your your go-to, this is the damage class, it would be Guardian. I remember there's also first aid in the core set, so there was that idea of healing straight away. And I feel like that strong sense of duty and selflessness that drives them to protect others, that was... Mainly in what dodge and first aid, thinking about the core set. <laughs> and I think if we expand to the other, the, the other obvious faction that had a, a strong early color pie identity was Seekers, and mm, mm-hmm. people would say Seekers are the clue finding faction. Yeah, and I don't know whether that's as much the case now. You probably easy, most easily find your clue acceleration tools in Seeker, or just your straight up mm-hmm. boosts to intellect to be able to investigate. Mm. Uh, are, are present in Seeker, but you know we can certainly build uh, survivors to be uh, excellent clue-getting machines. Stella Clark, for instance, can certainly fulfil the role as a, as a as a primary clue getter in a team. I would say, yeah, and, and Rogues yeah. as well. Um, and uh, you know, Alex has said as much in his in his message, but I'll 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 repeat that. A lot of very good clue-finding tools are now present purely in the Rogue faction. So we've got. You know, you've mentioned Intel Report a few times. We've got Lolo. We've got Lockpicks. Mm-hmm. Pilfer, Eavesdrop. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You could, you could build Finn easily as a primary clue getter on a team as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The the one that's actually maybe the vaguest to me here of the the classes is Rogues. That the the idea of them being self serving and out for themselves, and wily and opportunistic, 
I definitely see that in playing rogues. Absolutely. There's lots of cards that, you know, only commit to your own test or lone wolf where you have to be by yourself. I remember when we wrote those articles, they were the rogue article was the hardest one for us to write. And it was quite hard to pin down that. And I think there's an inherent tension here between playing a team game and playing as the rogue who your teamwork might look different from other people. We talked about it before as well with, was it? actions no it was who goes first and talking about you know rogues the value of their actions might seem less than other people's but they can because they have so many of them and they can sort of do anything Mm. and it's yeah it's really striking to me that it's that it's there in that description i suppose exploiting their current situation absolutely i can see that now where there's so many rogues where an enemy appears and they rub their hands together delightedly whether it's going to be the evade, pickpocketing, lucky cigarette case thing, or a Tony deck I've been playing every time an enemy arrives, I'm like, money time, you know, I'm going to get extra <laughs> actions off this enemy, I'm going to do all sorts of things. So, yeah, that idea of exploitation, I think, is not, it's not a word I think of with rogues at the moment, but I think it probably is there. So I think what we're, what we're skirting around is that while there was a colour pie, if certain things sat firmly in various factions section of the colour pie early on in the game. Uh, I think that has changed. And the the real difficulty in Arkham would be that if you tie certain key mechanics of the game into colour pie slices, like I said with with magic, you really limit what a faction can do in the game and how they can interact with the game. In, in a game of magic, maybe you can ignore creature destruction because maybe there's not many creatures in the meta. Maybe creature destruction is very expensive in your factions. Maybe you want to deal with creatures through direct creature combat. So you just put more of your own creatures in there. You know, you, you, you can work around that. But in Arkham, if you're playing a pure guardian character and you don't have access to any ways to get clues, it's going to really limit what you can do, especially if you're playing at lower player counts or solo or true solo, as it's often called. Mm. We can call it solo. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I think that there needs to be, in Arkham, more of a flexibility around those those pie slices than there is in other games. Yeah, we already see in the core set, to, to go back to this, we see medical texts in Seeker, so healing not in Guardian. We see weapons, as I mentioned, not in Guardian. We see Guardian with evidence. They can get clues. Yeah. And so it, already there's a something of a blurring of, of the colour pie. And for me, it makes me come back to this idea of the colour pie being much more about thematic yeah. restriction yeah, rather I, I, than I, mechanical. I don't necessarily think it's, it's a blurring of the colour pie, really. It's, it's, it's a... It's a, it's a the, the colour pie isn't strictly limited to fundamental mechanics i think the phrase alex has used in his message is is a feels right approach so Mm. yes i can get clues as any faction but the way i get clues is influenced by how that faction operates so evidence is a great example right back in the core set we've got guardians getting clues when they kill enemies Mm -hmm. which feels right for that faction Uh, they want to be killing enemies and then yes they get they get a card that can do it yeah, he contrasts this just for full clarity with the idea of a strict colour pie, 
which is the idea we talked about initially with magic, where there are certain things that factions simply cannot do. So if a strict color pie were to be applied to Arkham, potentially we would say something like Seekers do not have damage abilities. And we'd get rid of Acidic Icor, Ancient Stones, uh, Blood Rite, as we mentioned, Occult Invocation, I've Got a Plan. These are not seekery. I'm using uh, air quotes there, <laughs> if we were strictly policing it, because this is not a faction for damage. The problem here, I think, is about Solo. And if you say that certain factions can't do certain things, you quickly run into problems. Yes. Where it starts to become a really difficult game to play. And I think from the off, what the developers did with Arkham was say, right, instead of strictly doing that, we're going to make certain things harder for certain factions. The example I gave last episode was that Seekers, when they see an enemy, should feel threatened by it. They should they, That should pose them some problems. Mm-hmm. It's not that they won't have the answers. It's just it might cost them more to deal with them. They're certainly not going to be rubbing their hands in gl- with glee like a rogue would be when an enemy turns up. Again, speaking generally here. So I, I would say that they're especially sort of mid... Several cycles ago, I think, there might have been some grumbling that Seekers were a faction that didn't feel like they had to make compromises in terms of what they could do purely in the mechanics of the game. Mm. We saw quite early on for Seekers, both Acidic Icor and I've got a plan, Mm. as well as a number of other cards, which allowed them to quite efficiently deal with enemies. Mm. Do you think there's an argument that Seekers were able to access without compromise a lot of other Mm. areas of the colour pie? I've dropped dropped a big question on your lap there. (laughs) I can certainly see the argument and find it pretty convincing, yes. But I think as we've talked about before, it also feeds more generally into one of the things that happens when you play Seeker, which is that some of the other things they're good at, they're so good at that it it mitigates the downside. So for instance, they're really good at card draw. Mm -hmm. All the factions have card draw of some sort, which again points to me towards this feels right uh, approach to the colour pie. It's not that, that draw is gated to Seeker, it's definitely not, but they're so good at drawing cards that they can find those solutions more easily than other people. And I think actually in that class description, they wish to research forgotten lore, that's getting Acidic Icor or Ancient Stones, map out uncharted areas, that's the movement. And then study strange creatures is perhaps less apparent to me, but they're certainly good at killing strange creatures if they need to. I suppose what I'm trying to say is, if you're saying that every faction has access to everything, but it has to feel right for the faction, and then one faction can draw really heavily so it can find its solutions more quickly, yes, that is going to be tricky. So let's flip it on its head. Say Guardians have lots of ways of getting clues, but they're A, cards that they have to first draw, and Guardian has less draw than Seeker, broadly speaking, and B, they require an enemy that immediately puts them on the back foot that they also need to find an enemy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. How about you? Turn the turn the question back on the questioner. <laughs> Ipso custodius custodiest. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It, it, it is, it's, it's a good question. I, I tend to think that a lot of 
the mechanics which ended up in the seeker portion of the the pie have ended up being ones that are quite valuable. Mm. So we've seen cards like Shortcut and Pathfinder in Seeker. There's a lot of kind of broadly good clue finding cards. You can sort of take up a lot of the work needed to do purely on the Seekers, which allow you to offload. We talked last episode about how you felt that the team of Lily and Jack, Jack was maybe doing like 80% of the work really well. I didn't and put then, a number on it, but sure. <laughs> but you you could feel as Lily, you were twiddling your thumbs until an enemy popped up. Yeah, yeah. Because that Lily deck is quite tuned to taking down enemies with a handful mm. of ways of getting, yeah. say, getting clues. Which may be straying a bit far from the colour pie discussion here. But I guess mm. the question is then, if the Jack deck was solo, how much would it be hampered by enemies showing up? Mm. Because I feel like largely I've not put in many ways to deal with enemies aside from just evading them and running off. Which, I mean, you know, I think in that deck isn't necessarily a bad approach anyway. No, no. Uh, What what would you feel about that? Well, I think it's a really... I'm really glad you brought this up because the other question is if I wanted to add more clue-getting cards or movement cards to Lily... I have added safeguard level two, so I can piggyback off all of your movement. It's an efficient guardian card, but it definitely requires someone else to be doing the moving. Hmm. If I wanted to add more clue cards, I'm probably adding them around enemies, right? I'm adding an evidence or a scene of the crime. Or uh, I'm just checking that I'm getting my factions right here, a lesson learned. Yeah, we're upgrading into guardian. A Greta Wagner say... uh, and on the trail, like all of these cards require enemies. So I could be doing that to say, look, I can get more clues, but I'm still waiting for enemies. I'm still contingent on one of us drawing an enemy early on. And then it's hard to argue against you saying, well, look, just don't bother getting clue stuff because I'm in Seeker and Rogue, so I'll get clues. Why don't you spend your XP on better weapons, better events to kill enemies? more healing, whatever else it is. Mm. You know, all the alternative is saying, okay, I'm going to boost my willpower. I'm going to, I'm going to run Sixth Sense or Right of Seeking or something like that. Again, I think it's quite a hard sell for me to dedicate slots in my deck to something that it feels like you probably are more efficient at. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess that's where I get to with that. So if I jump back to the Seeker question... Is mm. is Seeker too good, basically? <laughs> <laughs> I think Alex does touch on this in his letter as well, uh, where he says there's something appealing to us as... Well, he's used the phrase hardcore fans. Mm. I don't know whether that's how I would describe us. <laughs> but there is, there's something appealing to people who play a lot of games about having your faction choice be meaningful. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, or something that you agonise about, something that that is a difficult decision to make and comes with it the acknowledgement that you're going to be weak in particular areas. You can see where I'm coming from from that, right? That's like like a feeling limited by the decision you've made makes it seem like you've made a difficult decision or a meaningful decision. And that feels like I'm using my skill as a player to make a decision on something, which is a rewarding position to be in, especially if I turn out to be right. <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But what what that goes on to lead to is 
frustration for other players that they just simply cannot do a thing. So let's imagine a world where Seekers didn't have access to anything that did any sort of damage. Mm. How would they feel to play solo? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can answer that question. You've got more experience playing yeah, solo than rewind I have. To the, rewind to the, the core set. Just trying um, to play solo with Daisy, for instance. Daisy, yeah, exactly. You've got Mind Over Matter and Shriveling with your willpower of three. And that's basically it for damage. Yeah. And that in itself <laughs> leads us on to a neat thing, which is that most of the investigators aren't gated to a single faction. So that yes. straight away adds that wrinkle to the discussion. If you had to choose your investigator and they only had one one class access and that class access was strictly limited to what it could and couldn't do, that could feel really restrictive. Yeah. And, you know, like I'm building a Harvey Walters solo deck at the moment. And so that is seeker only and thinking, well, how will I deal with enemies? I'm not availing, evading them with my agility of two. So what what do I put in there? How do I <laughs> strap on those hiking boots, Harvey, and start dodging away from enemies? You know, it, it takes some thought. But then at this stage in the game's life, there's no shortage of options. So what I'm feeling like is at the heart of the game, there's a tension between wanting to let any investigator be able to work efficiently solo or just mm -hmm. get through a scenario and also wanting the factions to feel distinct mm -hmm. and the ways you do things within the factions to feel right. Yeah. But I just mentioned that, you know, with the Daisy example, you can actually then splash, use your other class to shore up. You know, most investigators we look at are not forced to only be in a single class. And that started in the core set with the 5-2 split. Yeah. At this point in the game, there's really neat numbers as well. Say I'm playing Wendy. She's rogue 0 to 2. There are 209 rogue cards in the game. Mm -hmm. And 151 of them are level 0 to 2. Yeah. So she has access to three quarters of the rogue pool. Yeah. Roughly speaking. Just under that. With her faction off class. That's that's pretty significant, I'd say. You yeah. know, you could you could build an entirely green Wendy deck, I'm sure. And I don't think we make enough of that, generally speaking. Or rather, I, th I think the inclination is you look at the colour of your investigator and say, right, they're survivor, so I'm going to do survivory things. Oh, how does the rogue access using Wendy, how does that complement what I'm doing here? When actually what Wendy's offered is all of one class and three quarters of another class for her to play around in and do whatever she'd like to do. I don't know if I'm going to any significant point here. But <laughs> Just rambling. Well, I say that. But no, but I think, I think that is significant, actually. Yeah, you know, for, for Daisy, you don't say she has... We don't say she has access to three quarters of Mystic. We say, oh, she's only got level zeros to two. Yeah. As though that, you know, she's limited from the really good stuff. Yeah, anyway. Yes. Where does that leave us? <laughs> well, I, good question. Yeah, th thank you for, th for that, that diversion into Wendy. I mean, <laughs> we could also say now we've got a larger, well, an influx of multi-class cards in the latest, the latest pack as well. You can, you can 
I don't like using the word bleed, but I'm going to use it. Uh, you can you can bleed out further by accessing cards in one of your your kind of your native factions that access a, an effect typically outside of your your pit of the color pie. Mm-hmm. So let's think of an example. So we'll look at say a seeker who can now take divination which allows them to use a willpower replacement to, to get clues. So mm. if we have a high willpower seeker, they're able to bleed into the mystic section or one of the mystic mechanics, which is willpower replacement, um, and, and, t- and take a card like that. Mm. Or allow, you know, same thing for a guardian. You know, if you've got a high willpower lily deck, for instance, she's able to fight using the brand Cthuga. Well, I mean, that's not a great example because she's, kind of guardian and mystic class anyway <laughs> but but you, you see you yeah. see where I'm, I'm coming from here mm. you get that kind of sideways bleed of effects um due to multi-class cards and by necessity they aren't as potent as they would be what's a good example of a multi-class card that's got a really nice pair of effects oh uh say um uh webo yeah a scavenge and a clue at range yes and i'm taking that in my jack deck who has firmly got seeker access and finding clues. And if I wanted to, I could take cards that would find clues at, at connecting locations. Mm-hmm. But I don't have any access to that that kind of recursion in my native classes. The recursion mm-hmm. really feels like it's in the survivor section of the colour pie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that multi-class really allows more bleeding across across those those boundaries of pie slices. Yeah. With naturally more restrictions. So you compare, I think we probably said this when we reviewed it with Veronica. You look at Webb, compare him to scavenging. I don't know, there's, there's, I feel like if you're wanting recursion, <laughs> you wouldn't take Webb if you could take scavenging because scavenging is, is a lot better. Mm. Yeah. But not yeah. everyone who has access to one has got access to the other. Alex asks, how have the new multi-faction cards affected your understanding of Arkham's colour pie? Maybe that's where I'm getting faction from, that Alex has used the word faction. (laughs) And as you were speaking then, I was thinking that there's also what multi-class cards say theoretically about the colour pie and how that actually feels in practice. So Mm. William Webb is a great example because we can cut William Webb in half. Sorry, Webbo. And see that the scavenge, the recursion ability comes from survivor, and the clue at range ability comes from seeker. Yeah, we say, oh, okay, so that gives us a real sense of the what kind of abilities belong in their respective sections of the color pie. But then the actual experience of it is a kind of muddying where you're saying, like, okay, so now Jack, who has access to rogue and seeker, has access to a recursion ability, and is that? Is that okay? And I suppose multi-class cards, by their nature, span these different class divides and allow people who might not have access to that kind of ability access to it. I think part of the theme of the Edge of the Earth cards has been around synergy as well. Mm -hmm. So there's necessarily a certain amount of, let's get messy, let's let things end up in places they shouldn't end up so that you can be synergistic. And when I think about the five talents prophetic bruiser etc i was thinking about them in in anticipation of this episode because they're triple class cards and they say really nothing i would say about the color pie yeah because they all work identically 
<laughs> and they actually don't care about the faction at all. What they care about is a trait or two, you know, three traits. You can say that those traits, broadly speaking, belong to certain factions, but we know that not all traits are gated to certain, you know, all of the traits that are involved have representation across multiple factions. So anyway, we know that the color pride doesn't care about traits. It doesn't say that all tactic cards are guardian and all trick cards are survivor. That's not the case. So yeah, so like in in that instance, that ability of having two re- replenishable resources is not is not gated at all by faction. But when we think about the Dunwich permanent skill boosters, they still at that point were trying to do something. I think that respected the color pie. Yeah. Do you see where I'm going with this, where it was cards in hand for Seeker, it was having more resources for Rogue, it was using Doom instead of resources for Mystics, it was trying to say, look, you can all have stat boosts, but they need to be done in a way that represents the faction in some some sense. Yeah. And should we chuck Neutral in here as well? How does yeah. Neutral fit for you? Well, well Neutral is like a like a super multi-class, isn't it? Yeah. So it, it it's uh I think everyone in the game has access to every neutral card. Am I being there's no I'm not being stupid and forgetting someone, obviously, am I? No, I don't think so. Yeah. Unless there's like a fortune neutral card that Rex is forbidden from taking. Yes. Oh, well there's a weapon. Carolyn. Yeah. Carolyn weapons one to five. Yeah. I think that might be a fortune. It's maybe like tempt fate or something. Fortune. No, that's blessed and blessed and cursed. Yeah. So, so, so I guess by necessity they need to be the the mildest versions of all of the effects, right? And they need yeah. to be the, the the kind of the flavorless versions of them all that don't do. They don't get clues in any way that a faction gets clues. For instance, mm-hmm. yeah, I I wrote in my notes. You know, they they also serve as benchmarks. You can exchange a card and an action for three resources. So that means if you want to design for a class that is better at getting resources, it needs to be better than that. Yeah, whatever whatever better than that looks like. Or you need to add on top of that your faction spin. So like on the hunt level three is a cool example. It's sort of still an emergency cache, except it's fast and it comes with an enemy and it comes with the wrinkle that you need to kill that enemy. But, you know, overall it comes out better. Or you look at a Faustian Bargain in Rogue, it's a card for five resources rather than three with some some wrinkles. And I think Flashlight is the same. It's Everyone has access to minus two shroud three times for two resources. That becomes the sort of the benchmark around which you then try and make sure that everything else you add is better than that, but not just better, but in keeping with its faction. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think I think neutrals are worth bearing in mind. The other thing I'd add is that some of the discussion on our Discord turns this idea of like, is time worn brand too good a neutral card? At 5 XP, you could probably say the same for Key of East, which we've not mentioned on the cast for a long, long time. Yeah. And I, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking for Time Warn Brand and for Ornate Bow, if they were actually multi-class, 
rather than neutral. I wonder if that, you know, imagine Time One Brand was multi-class guardian mystic. It's got the willpower ability from mystic. It's got, it's, you know, a reliable weapon in guardian. And same with Ornate Bow. Imagine if Ornate Bow was rogue survivor. Like it's a great rogue survivor weapon. It gets, lets you use agility. It takes time to reload, which is quite a roguish thing to have lots of extra actions for reloading the bow. Yeah. The question I've got is, would it manifestly change, especially for Ornate Bow, would that really change who takes the card? Mm. So I can I can sort of I can sort of see the argument for Time One Brand. I guess you, you might have say Silas doesn't mind taking the the, the brand at all, yeah. right? It's a, it's a nice reliable weapon because he's There's the Amanda Sharp brand decks as well, yeah. with like vicious yeah. blow underneath her. Yeah, true, true. But does does limiting those decks does that add anything to the game? Mm. I don't know. I I I tend to think I, I'm not too fussed about Time One Brand being a neutral card, personally. Mm, neither am I. So <laughs> we've got two people who don't mind too much <laughs> trying to solve the complaints of people who do mind. It, for me, it's that if I'm running Time One Brand and I'm my role is fighter, I'm grateful that there's that as an option. Yeah. But if I'm not a fighter, I'm not spending 10 XP on two copies of Time One Brand. If I'm again thinking multiplayer here. Got other things I want to do. I think it's nice yeah. that there is a there is a there's a five XP strong weapon that your enemy management character can take for sure. Yeah, and I think most enemy enemy management characters would probably have something else in faction they could use, mm-hmm. which might have have more potent effects in particular situations than the brand. But mm. it does feel like it feels it feels a nice little section. Uh, It'd be really interesting to see as well if the players who are saying, I feel like I always take this card in Guardian, now with the arrival of Cyclopean Hammer, will say, ah, okay, there's an answer to Time Warm Brand. Yeah. Watch this point that that's the Edge of the Earth cards are still being experimented with and the dust hasn't yet settled on how people really feel about all of the cards. It'd be really intriguing to see. We sort of strayed into this. So why should... I, Peter, me personally, think about the colour pie when I'm oh, no. building or upgrading my decks. I was just about to ask you this question. <laughs> yeah, I tried to get in before you... I saw that, yeah. Well, I guess, I guess the obvious answer is... Or maybe not the obvious answer. The answer I, I have in my head is that it will influence how I support the, the, the primary things my deck needs to do through access to the cards I've got. So if if I mean if, if I'm building a solo deck, I know I need to do clue fighting, I need to do enemy management, I probably need to do some mythos management, and then I need to have an economy going. Mm. I know if I'm playing, say, Mystic, and I'm using a large number of Mystic cards, because of my understanding of the colour pie, I know I'm likely to be using uh, willpower replacement effects and or doom effects to... Mm. to that that will be reflected in the cards I'm I'm putting in my deck, so I'll need to manage those, and manage how I how I use those cards. So I know if I'm a Mystic, I'll need to put willpower boosting cards in my deck. Maybe that sounds incredibly obvious, <laughs> um, but it gets more complicated when I start to add in other cards as uh, other factions as well. So if I go back to to Agnes. 
mm. I can start to think, well, I've got access to the, the kind of failure tech that's in Survivor and the willpower replacement effect that's in Mystic. Mm. What angle do I go for in terms of getting clues? Can I rely on my willpower being high enough when I need it to be to be able to get clues if I'm using willpower replacement effects? Can I rely on getting those cards at the right time? Or should I be building in some kind of other backup, um, some cards that are more flexible to do that? We can apply that to other characters as well. Before we went on air, I start talking about Jack. And mm. again, you know, we can see when Jack is first built, he's probably relying on the rogue cards to be kind of doing his fundamentals. And we know because of the rogue section of the color pie, you know, he's going to be doing things like playing favor cards. He might be um, using things like, I don't know, he might, maybe he's using lockpick. Mm-hmm. So we, we understand that to reflect that, he's probably going to need a strong economy to support paying, paying for those expensive cards. Luckily, Jack does have an economy ability built into the front of his card, which is always handy in, in these situations. But interestingly with Jack, obviously he upgrades into a different class. So Mm. as he starts to upgrade, his place in the colour pie shifts. So actually maybe that economy doesn't need to be so strong as I'm starting to to upgrade my deck. He starts Mm. to rely on seeker clue acceleration cards and and intellect uh, boosting cards as he levels up. So I start to take things like deduction level 2. As, as I level up, maybe at one of my level zero cards, I've put in fingerprint kit, for instance. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's entirely possible, isn't it, that you put in lockpicks and upgrade that into Magnahind last level one. Yeah. And you go from a three cost one action card that might break to a zero cost fast card that's just giving you that steady intellect because you're adding in deductions, as you say, or other commitment. And obviously your cost curve changes considerably there from three Absolutely, to zero. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we could we could use our understanding of the colour pie with Jack to see that, you know, well, to not end up in a situation where we're a we're an average seeker with a whole pile of cash that he can't spend <laughs> yeah, after after yeah. three or four scenarios. Mm-hmm. How about you? Do you yes. feel like that this this has led you to any how you thought about how you think about the colour pie? Any revelations? Mm. Not revelations, but some some confusion. So I'm planning on playing through Edge of the Earth with not one, not two, but five solo investigators. And I wanted to treat myself to one from each faction. And so I've been building decks for that. And I've got a little spreadsheet so I can do my campaign log that way. And the question of how each faction does what has definitely been vaguely on my mind as I think about what what's put in each deck and how I'm going to upgrade them in particular. It's like, how are these decks going to become strong? What are they going to do that's their thing? And I was thinking about running solo Carolyn for my Guardian, because I've not run her for a while. And again, coming back to the head-scratcher of how do you play Carolyn? And I asked, I asked some people for, for decks and suggestions. Our discussion, I think, really illustrates why building Carolyn might be harder, because she can draw from so many different places that it's quite hard to know what faction do I want to do what. So I was thinking, you know, should I be leaning into Guardian Clue stuff? Because I can. And if I do that, then how am I going to kill enemies? 
And if I do that, am I missing out on what Mystic offers me and what Seeker offers me? Or should I just be getting clues using the Seeker access that she has? Do you see what I mean? There's there's almost too much choice with that particular investigator for my puny little mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe a more germane one if we go back to the Lily and Jack. My Lily deck changed quite considerably in the building of it. I built built what was a fairly conventional mystic deck. And then the more we talked about what I was going to upgrade into, the more that deck changed. Yeah. But it started with Shriveling and Sixth Sense, and it was going to be pretty good stuff. Uh, Holy Rosary in there. Renfield, get the willpower boosted up nicely. But then when we started looking at XP, so we were moving into a different part of the color pie into Guardian, we're saying, well, hang on, what if Guardian actually supports any of this and the guardian upgrades are you know fang of what's it called fang of oh yeah i can't remember i was gonna say fang of kathuga fang of tithurtha sweeping kick maybe a big weapon you know the butterfly swords whatever that is those cards don't really complement the mystic suite so that whole deck got torn apart and rebuilt it in a different <laughs> way, which was good. I, I enjoyed that. I thought was, I'm really enjoying the deck we've ended up with, with Brands of Cthulhu and Dragon Pole and Protective Talisman to just fill the arcane slots cheaply and quickly. It's, it's really fun. Yeah. I, I think we're treading some of the same ground about the Edge of the Earth investigators and the way that they stride the colour pie because of the way they upgrade. You don't have those same problems when you're upgrading daisy you're not like oh i've put all these mystic cards in my level zero deck but i'm upgrading into seeker it's like no you, <laughs> you knew you were a seeker and you're staying a seeker yeah you, you st- yeah stay on the same track i think it's such a difficulty with these new investigators mm-hmm. it ties into what you were saying about wendy earlier that you as wendy you're not purely a survivor no you're a survivor in three quarters of a rogue yeah uh, yeah. Just the colour of a card automatically guides your thinking in, in a particular direction. And yeah. that's felt nowhere as much as on these Edge of the Earth investigators. Well, since you came back to Wendy, here's a somewhat tangential point, but it is actually related to Colour Pie. For a while, survivors didn't have any XP cards higher than level 3. Was that <laughs> good or bad in terms of Colour Pie? Discuss. Well, yeah, it, it has the effect of warping what out of faction... So so you could make the argument that uh, Yorick is far more limited in the cards than Tommy, who has the, the, the restriction in reverse, or the deck building requirements in reverse, right? Yeah. Well, it's, weirdly, it's not... <laughs> so I was thinking there'd be far fewer, but there are 205 survivor cards, and... Survivor 0 to 2, there are 148. Yeah. If you have Survivor 0 to 2, it's not that you see a greater proportion of the Survivor pool. You see about 75% as well. It's just that the 25% you're not seeing, most of it isn't above level 3. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it absolutely is a, an additional part that's... It's one element of we don't really. I'm trying to think of any other example where the faction identity, so its place in the color pie, 
has an impact on particular kind. Like, I suppose research, researched, is the only other place I can think of. The idea that seekers have access to things, but they have to work for them. It's not colour pie, is it? It's just a thing that is unique to that faction. Well, but yes, but that's that feels to me like colour pie. So a card okay. that you, yeah, mm-hmm. I'd be happy putting something unique to a faction into a, into a colour pie. So Peter, what have you learned from this colour pie discussion? Yeah, I think we've 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 ranged quite far, and I hope people have found it sort of informative. You listen to us ramble. I guess for me that it it really gives some context to that discussion. If people are, I don't know, feeling aggrieved that a particular faction has access to a particular kind of card, if there's been some bleed over in terms of mechanics, and I think we've. The, the seeker problem is one we, we, we talked about during the episode. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's where it, it, it kind of it is most contentious. Mm. But really the flip side of that conversation is what if they didn't have access to those cards at all? And mm-hmm. I, I would be broadly in favour of being more permissive than being too restrictive because it allows people to... to to have fun building decks and using those factions in in a, in pretty much all modes of play. If you've pitched the game as being playable solo, and yet one of the factions is incredibly difficult to play solo, that's probably going to feel pretty bad for those players mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, who've bought the game to play like that. And maybe Seekers are just never happy, right? Because early <laughs> on it was Seekers was not the faction you play solo that was a you know it's a badge of honor if you tried to go through return and uh, go through night of the zealot as daisy solo back in the corset days and yet now <laughs> the seekers can do everything and that's a problem as well so maybe seekers are just they're just always thirsting for more which is very fitting yeah <laughs> yeah i guess i guess so yeah i, I think that, that that's that's my real conclusion i really like mm. using the color pie to think about how factions maybe should approach uh, particular tasks within the game and that those tasks shouldn't be limited to a particular faction either i don't know maybe if we were going to dive deeper we could we could actually like pull up every card in the game and start assigning them to to kind of what they do one to five most most belonging to the faction yeah, yeah yeah you know these are the ways so you split up each each faction by you know enemy management getting clues uh dealing with the mythos and then you mm. you pile each card they've got into that those sections of that pie within a pie mm-hmm. yeah is there anything you've taken away from this discussion or has it just been a fun chat i think that what i've taken away as well is that it can feel quite instinctive particularly after playing the game now for quite a long time that there are things that feel right or wrong, which obviously links back to that feels right approach to the colour pie. And you can have quite a visceral reaction if something doesn't feel right. Mm, And that's okay. You know, that can be one of... When, as rogues in sort of cycle four and five, we're getting a lot more succeed by X cards, some more weapons, there weren't people saying, hang on, rogues don't get these weapons. That's a guardian thing. It was okay. Like people understood that that was fine, and that they were roguish weapons. They behaved in a in a rogue way. Maybe it was harder to get the damage, or the damage asked more of you to get it. Yeah. So that to me suggested that something was working quite well there. 
that we understood that it was part of their color pie. We'd just not seen it developed yet. Yeah. And I suppose that's the other thing behind this, this whole the iceberg effect, that what we've seen of the cards now is only a small portion of how many cards we might end up with. And of course, as we discover more things, we realize that there are sub-themes within the factions that could be fleshed out in more detail. If we ever get um, Jeremy on the cast, I'd really like to ask him what areas he'd like to develop in the game, like what mechanics would get him excited. Because I imagine he's got a whole list, and Maxine the same, of course. But just picking their brain about things that might excite them would be really cool. Seeing what's what's on the notepad by the bed, because I'm imagining <laughs> that they wake up and have an idea for Arkham that they immediately scribble down. Yes. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode, listener. As ever, we aim to start the discussion rather than end it so if you've had more thoughts inspired by this you've got things that you think we missed or that you want to add to the discussion we'd love to hear them we're always interested to hear what you have to say you can email us at drawn to the flame podcast at gmail.com and we're drawn to the flame on facebook twitter patreon and designed by humans shout out to alex for sending in that great email thank you so much and we hope we've done at least some of it justice peter how can people get in touch with you I am United everywhere. That's U-N-I-T-L-E-D. I'm on Twitter and Steam and Discord and very rarely on Reddit. And Instagram is the.unitled. So yeah, please say hello. How about you, Frank? I'm FB on Twitter. That's E-P-H underscore B-E-E. And I'm around the place as Zooey Glass or Zozo. Thanks Thank for you. listening. Thank you. Often I had to recall David McSorley from Ramblings, piece out scientific points which he, which he knew only by a fading parrot memory of Professor's talk, or bridge over gaps where his sense of logic and continuity broke down. When Stephen Much had satisfied the first keen edge of his curiosity, he scribbled a message in his notebook and had young Chris Silito run back to the camp to dispatch it by wireless. This was my first word of the discovery, and it told of the identification of early shells, bones of ganoids and placoderms, remnants of labyrinthodonts and thecodonts, great mosasaur skull fragments, dinosaur vertebrae and armour plates, pterodactyl teeth and wing bones, archaeopteryx debris, Miocene shark's teeth, primitive bird skulls, and skulls, vertebrae and other bones of archaic mammals, such as paleotheres, ziphodons, Dinoceroses, Eohippi, Oreodons, and Titanotheres. That's just absolutely classic Lovecraft. Just a really <laughs> long list of really difficult to say words. Yeah. <laughs>